Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it, that is the destruction of Ai, from the previous chapter. Verse 2, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. And Father, as we go into this chapter, we pray, Lord, that you once again will touch us with your spirit in the teaching. That these words would not be words generated by me, Father, but that we would all, every one of us, lock, stock, and barrel, Father, we would be caught up by your spirit to hear what you want us to hear. And to learn the things you want us to learn. I pray, Father, that each person's perception of what is taught tonight will be from your Spirit. An understanding will come in our hearts and our minds from your Spirit. That we will learn as we've been studying all along and praying for, especially through this book of Joshua, which is, by the way, Father, a great one. We just ask, Lord, that your Spirit will change us and we will learn to be both Spirit-filled and Spirit-led people. Father, I know that what we're going to study tonight is important. So give us ears to hear everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This we desire tonight, Father. By your Spirit, and through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now the Torah, as you know, is a tutor. The history of Israel is a teacher. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, These things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Paul says this is written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And if you want proof for that, watch Russia and Iran. I want to encourage you to keep an eye on that part of the world and on that alliance. Because Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 speak of an alliance between Persia and a country from the far north of Israel, Magog, Tubal, it's Russia. We're not going to talk about that tonight, but it just strikes me when we read this verse. These things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And we've never been closer. And what we see going on right now in the world stage is absolutely stunning. And I'm on the side, kind of in my own time, aside from studying Joshua, studying through Ezekiel right now, and I want to understand and learn and know, and I would encourage you, 36, 37, 38, and 39, those four chapters are absolutely relevant to what's happening in the Middle East today. 36 and 37 on in there, the return of Israel to the land, something that prophecy scholars all the way up through about 1947 could not have imagined until it happened in 1948, and it changed everything. And then 38 and 39, speaking of a war which is yet to be, that has never happened yet, prophesied the Magog War, the Magog invasion of Israel, involving such countries as Iran, Persia, Russia, Libya, and others around. It's interesting, and I will just say this, that up until recently, it's been confusing to look at Iraq from the biblical perspective and go, wow, you know, you see Russia in here and you see Libya in here and you see Iran in here or Persia forming this alliance coming against Israel. Why not Iraq? Well, suddenly Iraq is a very different situation than it was. Who knows what's going to happen with Iraq? 
We need to be praying for our soldiers, but I'm, I'm getting way off course here. Just that we are in an interesting time. People upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And if we truly believe that, then more now than ever before, we need to be students of the Word of God. We need to be learning from these things, these examples, what's been given to us for our understanding, for our growth. And as we've already noted, the book of Joshua is a great teacher. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been having a good time with this book. This is a great one. It's great as every book in the Bible, but it specifically is teaching us something about entering into the promises of God. The Spirit-filled and Spirit-led life that He promises every believer. And we've been making application and looking back and forth between what happened with Joshua and the Israelites and what happens in our own lives as we approach the Lord and seek to live by the Spirit. And as we continue to consider this life in the Spirit, I want to begin by listening or listing off Isaiah's description of the Holy Spirit, of the sevenfold nature of the Spirit resting in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now I need to tell you something. If you read this, and you hear me mention the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit, what you'll read is six different descriptions, not seven. So why would I call it the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit? Because the Spirit Himself, well, think of the lampstand in the temple. There were six branches off of the lampstand, but there was also a main shaft that had a lamp on it. Seven lights. And so those seven lamps on the lampstand, the lampstand in the temple is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so when we read in Isaiah 11.2, we see the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Jesus. There's the shaft right up the middle of the lampstand that has the light on it. And it says the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, all as though they were branching off that primary shaft, which is the Holy Spirit. This is the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. Listen again. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear. And strength is the only one that has physical application. The rest of them all have spiritual and mental application. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, and fear. And tonight we're going to talk about a spiritual gift that I have been praying for over the last three years more than any other. It's the one that if you ask me, Pastor Rick, what spiritual gift are you really pursuing? Which is the one you desire more than any other gift? I'll tell you what it is. It's discernment. Discernment. For in the days in which we live, I am believing more and more that discernment is critical to you and I as believers in listening to the Lord. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now, John says, is already in the world. Something you need to understand about Antichrist. Antichrist, the man, will rise. Antichrist, the person, will come. The Bible uh, is very clear about that. Antichrist, the spirit, was roaming around in the world in John's day. 
is already present, moving around, but unable to work, unable to move, unable to do what he wants to do, what Satan wants him to do. Restrained, if you will. Held back. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about that, that restraining influence that will hold that spirit of Antichrist back until the restraining influence is removed. We've talked about that before. It's it's the spirit working through the church. I believe personally, and I think you can see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that when the church is raptured, Deb, as we were talking about, when the church is pulled out of the world, guess who goes with the church? The Holy Spirit does. Right now, the Spirit is very present in the world through the church. As messed up as the church may be, and you and I know that very well, we don't have it perfect. But imagine what we would be without the Holy Spirit. Second John chapter 1, verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And it comes in such language as someone saying, Oh, well, my God and your God are the same God. I just call my God Allah. And you call your God, Jesus, same God. No, he's not. This is the deceiver. And this is the work and the spirit of Antichrist. John says, watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Which is why Sunday, Wednesday, in and out, constantly I'm going back to the Word and saying, study the Word, know the Word, be in the Word. John says, be careful, don't go too far. Anyone who does that and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. And Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and all the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. We are called to be people who are discerning. Now listen, we're not called to paranoia. There's a difference. There's discernment and there's paranoia. And paranoia comes from the fear of man. Are they against us? Can they hurt us? Are they going to show up here and talk again? Is, is, is he on our side? Is he against me? Paranoia, fear of man. The Bible says, Proverbs 29:25, the fear of man brings a snare. Discernment, however, comes from the fear of God. The fear of God. Proverbs 2, verse 2 says, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. His mouth in my ear. That is being Spirit-led. And that is a discerning life. Proverbs 2, verses 2-6. through 6, Excellent few verses there just to study, to memorize, to have in your heart. We are not to shrink back into our safe little churches, tucked away from the world and its wiles, but we are called to be discerning with wisdom and godly fear, not fear of man, fear of God in these last days, because things aren't always what they seem. And with that in mind, we follow Joshua and the children of Israel into a situation where things are not what they seem. 
The people of Israel have been given a clear responsibility regarding the seven Canaanite nations usurping the land. And I want you to see that responsibility clearly. Put your finger there in Joshua 9 and flip over to Deuteronomy 7. Just a uh, chapter back or a book back. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Again, the children of Israel have been given clear responsibility relating to the seven Canaanite nations that are present in that place in the land. Here is the responsibility. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, And he clears away many nations before you. And then he gives us the list. The Hittites and the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Now, if you think the Lord's being completely unmerciful, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. He's just said, these seven nations, these Canaanite nations that are in the heart of Israel, Israel today, Israel back then, those seven nations are to be utterly obliterated, completely wiped out, no mercy, and specifically, no covenant. Don't make a covenant with those people. Now Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 10 says, When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. Wait a minute, didn't he just say obliterate? Read on. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city and all its spoil you shall take as booty for yourselves. You shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. He says in verse 15, watch this, Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. So here's the proclamation of the Lord. Those seven listed nations are to be wiped out. The rest of the nations, the surrounding nations, Moab, Edom, we've already seen wars against Og and Sihon of those two kingdoms. These other regions around you, you don't have to wipe them out. You can make peace with them. But originally those seven immediate surrounding Canaanite nations were to be destroyed. And that, let me remind you, is because of their sinful rebellion. Because the lifestyle was so heinous. Genesis 15:16, God said to Abraham in the fourth generation, the Israelites will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What God was waiting for, what God was giving the Amorites, the Canaanites, 400 years for, was time to repent of their sin, or, if they chose to, be so horribly embedded in their sin that the only thing worth doing was putting them out of their misery. And that's where they're at when the Israelites come back into the land. The Lord did not bring Israel into the land for wanton destruction. He was keeping His promise to Abraham while at the same time judging the horribly sinful people. And that's what's going on here when the Lord says, Make no covenants. Be careful with your covenants because we're going to see in this chapter Joshua and Israel are tricked into doing just that to making a covenant with one of these nations that they were not supposed to make a covenant with. We're going to outline the chapter in four sections. First uh, first section, if you're taking notes, number one, 
we will see here a covenant of deception. Verse 3 of Joshua chapter 9. A covenant of deception. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Make a covenant with us. Now apparently what's going on in these first few verses of this chapter is the kings of these nations have begun to try to band together and form some kind of an alliance to fight against, uh, against Joshua and Israel because they know what's been going on. They've heard all the way back 40 years before to the Red Sea incident. They are aware of that. They're aware of Israel coming across and crossing into across the Jordan. They're aware that this people of millions, some two to three million people, somehow stayed alive in the desert for all these years and even grew stronger. And they're aware this people came in and sacked Jericho, a city that seemed impenetrable. They're aware that this same nation went up against Ai and ultimately destroyed them as well. And so all these kings are trying, they're sending letters back and forth, and they're trying to communicate and figure out how they can fight against these nations. And apparently one group here, the Gibeonites, didn't believe it was going to work. The Gibeonites, shaken in their sandals, decided they were going to try something different. They were going to be crafty and wily and sneaky. And the Hebrew word here, the Hebrew word is orma, shrewdness. These people are going to be smart. They're going to think it through. They're going to work it out. And they've come up with a way to trick Israel into making peace with them. Orma, shrewdness. Jesus said in Luke 16:8, The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. In other words, Jesus said there's something we can learn from crafty and shrewd people. Not to be like them, but at least to be a little more intelligent than sometimes we are. Just because you're a child of light doesn't mean you stop using your brain. Jesus calls us to a kind of shrewdness in the Hebrew or ma. But notice how the Gibeonites do this. They disguise themselves to look like travelers from afar, like they're from outside of the land, like they have nothing to do with, with the immediate seven nations. And they even speak that way, as you'll, as you'll see in a moment. They, they come across as seekers. Oh, we've heard about you and, and what's going on, and, and we want to be part of, part of this, and we want a, a peace treaty with you. And when we compromise the truth of the gospel for the seeker, we are in danger of deception. It doesn't mean we don't love people who are seeking the truth. It doesn't mean we don't go out of our way to evangelize people who are lost. But when we water down the message for the seeker, we're messing with the danger of deception. The reality is, gang, the only true hope anyone has of salvation is forgiveness of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. Period. There's no other way to be saved. The moment we compromise that message, we compromise salvation. So the Gibeonites, they come along as if traveling from a distant land to make a peace treaty with Israel, but it's a covenant of deception. This thing concerns me today about our nation attempting to negotiate peace especially with radical Islamic nations such as Iran, is this very thing, covenant of deception. 
You may have heard this before, but there's something that is embedded in the whole mentality of the Muslim faith. It's called the Quraysh model. The Quraysh model. Back in 629 AD, Muhammad signed a 10-year treaty of non-aggression with Mecca. He was coming up, they fought, neither one was really winning, so finally they signed a peace treaty together that said, we will leave each other alone for 10 years. Muhammad went away and within one year had built up his army in great strength, came back in 630 AD and wiped out Mecca, taking it by surprise and conquering it, violating the treaty of peace. And there were even followers of his at that time who said, you broke a peace treaty. How can that be right? And he says, oh, well, it's okay with Allah to make a treaty of peace. It's Quraysh. Quraysh. It means to negotiate with your enemy until you're strong enough to annihilate him. How can you ever sign a peace treaty with someone who believes in that? And that is embedded in the faith. So much so that Yasser, that's my baby Arafat. You remember him. He signed the Oslo Peace Accords. And he went back to the Middle East. And the Palestinian people and other Muslim Arabs were angry with him. Why did you sign that peace treaty? And he smiled, that wily smile that Arafat had. And he said, it's Kiraish. I signed it for now. But we'll get strong. And when we're strong enough, and they aren't expecting it, we will take them by surprise. It's Kiraish. It is still applied today. And when he said to his people, Ah, it's Kiraish, they knew exactly what he meant. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, a verse we've read many times. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You might say, well, wait a minute, Rick. Doesn't that fly in the face, in the face of evangelism? Of going out and telling people about Jesus? Of sharing the gospel? No, it doesn't. What Paul says, and be clear about this, is do not be bound together with unbelievers. Don't be connected in such a way where you're in covenant with them and you have to go the direction they're going. It may be in marriage. Don't be bound with an unbeliever. It may be in a business agreement. In fact, more and more, that's what I'm seeing. This dangerous Christians getting into business associations with non-Christians and then having to compromise their very faith. That's being bound with unbelievers. It doesn't mean that you can't be friends. It doesn't mean you can't communicate with. It doesn't mean you can't share the gospel. If someone is an unbeliever, you should befriend them in the name of Jesus Christ. But you don't bind yourself to them and thus compromise your own faith. Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And I believe and I have seen this to be the case. The more we pursue Jesus, the more we are called out and act like and live like Jesus the greater the witness and the greater our ability to reach a lost person because they see what we got and they want it the more we look like the world the more the world will say Christians are no different than we are why would I want that just have to get up on Sunday morning but it doesn't change their life it's not going to change my life I'm sleeping in dude why would I waste my time Dang, it's discernment to be cautious about any union with an unbeliever. 
It's not paranoia driven by fear of man. It's discernment led by the fear of God. Which is why, by the way, I will not align myself with anyone who doesn't declare Jesus Christ as Lord. Now many of you saw last week as as I was having that conversation with William. William from the Baha'i faith. And he asked me the question. He said, so you and I can't get together and and, and do something for the spiritual good of the area? And I said to him, I can't connect myself with you in that way unless you're telling me that the spiritual good for this area is Jesus Christ. If you'll do that, I'm with you. If you won't do that, I won't connect. Because I can't compromise the one truth that will save people and express some kind of vague spirituality that will basically just condemn people to hell outside of faith in Jesus Christ. He kept saying, we want the world to be more spiritual, don't we? I don't really care if the world's more spiritual. I care if people know Jesus. And that will bring about salvation. It's not about some fluffy, flowery thing. So back to our story. Why is it that Joshua and his men fell for the covenant of deception? A couple of reasons that are the next two parts of this outline. The covenant of deception, and Joshua had, number two, a clouded discernment. Kind of like what we got going on up here. It's getting cloudy. A clouded discernment. Look at verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So your elders and all the inhabitants of our country, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. You see, this our bread was warm when we took it out for our provisions out of our houses on the day we left to come to you. But now behold, it's dry and has become crumbled. And and these wineskins that we filled were new. And behold, they're torn. And these clothes and our sandals are worn out because of this very long journey. Covenant of deception and a clouded discernment. Consider what the Gibeonites do to fool Israel. They look the part. They're weary, they're worn out, they're in need of compassion, they need some help. They come as people who are under Israel and say, we'll be your servants. We've had such a long journey, it's been hard. And they look the part. The deception physically is there, but they also speak the right words. But what do you mean? Notice the Gibeonites make no mention of Ai. They don't talk about Jericho. Or even crossing the Jordan. They only talk about past and previous successes. Egypt and the Moabites and and the Ammonites. They appeal to the fame of Joshua. But they don't talk about anything that had happened recently. Even there they're coming across like people who don't have that news. They've been traveling so they're unaware of what's happened in the last few weeks there in the land of Canaan. They're playing it to the hilt. And they appeal to the fame of of Joshua. We heard about what your Lord did and we heard about what you did. How awesome and great and powerful you are. And man, that's got to feel good. Joshua's got to be going, well, yeah. Yeah, we fought well. It was pretty impressive. It should have been there with the wall. You know, I, I, it was great. When someone recognizes your fame, even what the Lord has done in you, 
I mean, hey, it was you he worked through, right? This is why, and you all probably know this, when, when you say good message, I get real uncomfortable. Because I don't want to lose my glory then. I don't want to lose my crown then because I get, you know, the accolade. So, so just, just wink or, or, I don't know, thumbs up or something. But this is the Lord's Word. This is His teaching. It has nothing to do with me. Fame is a scary thing, but it does feel good. That feeling of, of being chosen, of being set apart, of, of being set above other people, Satan will use it. And so Jesus says in Mark 9.35, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You want to look for the greatest person in the Bridge Christian Fellowship? It's the person sweeping up during the week when no one's in here. The greatest person in the Bridge Christian Fellowship is the one out there banging away at the heater. Way to go, Joe. See, I just blew it for him. <laughs> Matthew 23.11 says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Luke 22.25, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, the leader, like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Why are you talking about this, Rick? Because humility is key to discernment. When we become prideful, when we become puffed up, when we look at what we're doing or even what the Lord has done through us and we feel proud about that, we're in danger of not being discerning. Our vision gets clouded. Our discernment gets clouded. Proverbs 11.22 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. There's smarts in that gang. There is wisdom in humbling ourselves and in being the quiet servants. Even the gift of discernment, the spiritual gift, and it's listed among the gifts. Even someone who has been given the spiritual gift of discernment, gang, the gift itself is just that, a gift. So if you're able to discern things spiritually that others can't, don't be proud of it. It's a gift. It's something that's been given to you. It's not self-generated. And Joshua is not being discerning here. His pride is tickled, his sense is deceived, and his mind tricked. And gang, the main reason I believe Joshua's discernment was clouded at that time was the incident at Ai had not yet fully sunk in. We just studied Ai. Remember, they went up against it in chapter 7 on their own. And they lost. And they went up against it again, this time with the Lord's help, and won. Oh, we're back on track. Feeling good. Fighting well. Way to go, men. Alright, we're on track. And verse 14 tells us, So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And there's the problem. Verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them. He was told not to do He made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. A covenant of deception, a clouded discernment, and it leads to number three, a counsel disregarded. The counsel of the Lord. Nobody asked God. Nobody consulted the wisdom of the Father. And for that, just like at AI, they were on their own. Had Joshua stopped and said, wait, before we even talk with you anymore, we're going to go gather in the tent. 
And we're going to pray about this. And we're going to seek the Lord. I'm going to call in Eliezer. And we're going to go look at the Urim and the Thummim and see what happens there. And we're going to ask God to direct our decision. But He doesn't. He just takes the Gibeonites at their word, not realizing who they were, and He makes a covenant with them. And just three days after the covenant was signed, the Israelites discovered their error. Verse 16, it came about at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard they were neighbors, and that they were living within the land. And so the sons of Israel set out and came into their cities on the third day. Their cities were Gibeon and Chephira and Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. So now they got problems within the camp. Now everybody's looking at the leadership because the leadership didn't go to God. So they got problems without, they got problems within. Then it goes on, and the leader said to them, verse 19, to the whole congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them. Even let them live, so the wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. So the leader said to them, Let them live. Let them live. We're in a covenant now, and we can't go back on our word. And we can do that. We have that option. We can work it out for ourselves. We can saddle ourselves with unbelief through poor discernment. Or we can seek the counsel of the Lord. And over and over we're seeing this theme return in Joshua. And I'm beginning to wonder, Lord, what are you trying to tell us here? In fact, just this morning I had a meeting with some people about some land and some options that we're looking at there and some some possibilities that are very exciting for the bridge. And then I'm studying this and I'm going, all right, we're not going anywhere unless the Lord says to go. And we have got to be in prayer about it. And I pray that I ask you all to be in prayer about it as well. Lord, what do you want for the bridge? Do you want us to stay hold up in this little barn for the next ten years? If that's His will and that's the most powerful way He can work, so be it. If He wants land given to this fellowship, if He wants us to do other things, He's got to let us know and it's got to be His discernment and not ours. Because this is just jumping off the page. And the timing is very interesting to me about all of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says the following. He says, If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Take note. Be aware of it. Satan is always at work. He's trying to undermine. And if we are not seeking the counsel of the Lord, we are in danger of deception. It's either discernment or deception. And even the decision to forgive an offense, in Paul's case, was an issue to be brought before the Lord. For in our lives, we know or we think we know what the Lord wants to do or He wants us to do. He invites us to seek His counsel. Now don't miss that. There are many times where as Christians we say, Oh, I know what God would do in this situation. I know what Jesus would do. And we go to do that. And the Lord is still going, Hey, you may think you know. But check with me first. Still talk to me. It doesn't matter how crystal clear it is. How easy a decision it is. It doesn't matter if it's AI. That little heap. That dump. (laughs) We talked about on Sunday. Doesn't matter what it looks like, how sure you are of it, bring it before the Lord. Seek His counsel. Man, if the Lord's taught me anything in ministry, it's that I don't innately know what I need to know to effectively serve Him. 
How often do situations come up? I mean, weekly, daily, where I don't know what to do. I mean, you truly have a clueless pastor here. I'm not just saying that. You should take some of the calls. You should be a fly on the wall in my office sometimes when I hang up the phone and see the look on my face. It generally is like this. (laughs) Lord, you there? What about this one? And that's just about whether or not to let Annie in the barn. So, you know, I I don't always know (laughs) what to do. He's calling us to seek Him. Isaiah 50, verse 10, Who is it among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of His servant, listen to that, that obeys the voice of His servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? That's me. Who is it among you that fears the Lord, obeys the voice of His servant, Jesus, and walks... In the darkness and has no light. How often do we, even as Christians, we're just not sure which way to turn, which way to go, how to move. I I know the Lord. I trust His Word. I follow His servant Jesus. But I still walk in the darkness. I still need a flashlight on. I still need to hear from the Lord. I want to know what He wants me to know. And Isaiah says, if that's you, if you're that person, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. The voice of the servant. The voice of his servant. Some have tried to say in Isaiah 50, well, that's Israel. The servant is Israel. No, it's not. Because Israel was not pierced through for our transgression, Isaiah 53. Israel didn't die. It wasn't by Israel's stripes that I have been healed and saved. It was by Jesus Christ. The context of this teaching tells us that the suffering servant, the voice here, the voice is that of Jesus. And if you feel like you're walking in darkness and you can't see where you're going, the voice we need to listen to is the voice of the Spirit of Christ. It's Jesus Himself. It's interesting because back in chapter 9, verse 14, we read something. Look back there, verse 14. It says, The men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. That word counsel is mouth. Did not ask of the mouth of the Lord. It's the Hebrew word pay, P-E-H. Didn't, didn't seek the pay, the mouth of God. Remember Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, we read a few minutes ago, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The mouth of the Lord. What does that indicate? That he is speaking. And that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit is speaking. What Jesus is saying to us. The mouth of the Lord. One of my favorite book series, many of you have read. It's the C.S. Lewis series, The Chronicles of Narnia. In the second book, Prince Caspian, there's a great scene. Where Prince Caspian, the young prince, is escaping for his life. And he's riding on his horse, Destrier. And it's late at night and they're riding up through the mountains and he can't see where he's going and Destro is making his way along this path and suddenly Caspian hears a lion growling deep and low and it scares him to death. So he clings to his horse even more and the horse continues to clip-clop along and he just hears that lion and it's continually to his right. That lion's growl low and rumbling to his right for, for many, many moments. As finally, finally the growl goes away and he stops and gets off his horse and sleeps and the next morning he gets up and looks back where he had been and he was riding along a precipice where the right side was a complete drop off and the left side was the mountain and if he had swayed even a bit to the right he would have fallen to his death but that lion's growl the lion in the series is Aslan 
you know, who represents Jesus. That voice speaking, stay here, stay over to this side. Isaiah 30 verse 19 puts it great. Oh people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. The mouth, the mouth of the Lord. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears, listen, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or turn to the left. I love that verse. You're going to hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. So the question is not whether or not the mouth of the Lord is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Because the voice is back there. And he's saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Walk in it. Are we listening? Are we listening? I said on Sunday, again quoting C.S. Lewis, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience. He shouts at us in our pain. So I'll tell you what, if you're having pain in your life, God is really trying to keep you on the path. He's speaking loudly to keep you from going over the precipice. And He will even use something like pain to talk to us, to get our attention, to lead us home. Now to be clear-minded, discerning believers, to know the way we need to go, we've got to have an ear to the mouth of the Lord. Lord, what would you say? What are you thinking? What's your word on the matter? What's the logos have to tell me? 1 Corinthians 2.16 Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct Him? We have the mind of Christ. Everything we need, gang, to walk through the difficult path of this life, we have. And nothing less than the voice, the mouth of the Lord. May we learn the seriousness of this from Joshua. Moses warned of Israel's great problem. Deuteronomy 32.28 He said there are a nation lacking in counsel and there is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise that they understood this that they would discern their future. Discernment. That they would be a discerning people. Moses lamented Israel because he knew they were not discerning. We are called to discernment. By the way there is coming another time when Israel will sign a covenant They sign a covenant here with Gibeon. The results, they're actually okay. Israel's going to sign a covenant in the future where the results will be disastrous. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. says, He, speaking of Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many, speaking of Israel, for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. What is that all talking about? It's cryptic language. Well, it's cryptic, gang, because Daniel was a closed book at the time the prophecy was given. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel is told, seal up the words of this book. Until the last days. Well suddenly here we are in the last days and the book is unsealed and the book is understandable and explainable. And you women who are taking the Daniel Bible study, (laughs) you're going to see this. But Daniel 9.27 says, He, Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. One week. That literally is heptad. Seven. Seven years is what it's talking about. And we see this parallel in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation period. 
a covenant is going to be signed, a deceptive covenant with Antichrist. And by the way, that's what kicks off the tribulation. Just so that theology is clear and our literal interpretation of Scripture is understood here, it's not the rapture of the church that starts the tribulation in this world. It's the covenant Israel signs with Antichrist. Now I believe it will probably come pretty quickly after the rapture. But we don't know that for sure. All we know is that Israel is going to sign this covenant and bing, the clock starts ticking. By the way, for those of you who are wondering about the rapture of the church and why I believe it happens before the tribulation, if you were asking this, the reason, one reason why the tribulation happens after the church is raptured. When this peace treaty is signed, we will have a moment in time biblically told to us that begins the tribulation. All anybody has to do to know then when the tribulation is over and when Jesus is coming back is begin counting. Now if that doesn't make sense, let me explain a little more. Antichrist sits down at the table. Israel comes up, the leaders, and they sign off and all of a sudden start the stopwatch and you can count seven years and precisely seven years from that time Jesus comes back. The rapture cannot happen when he comes back at that time. It has to precede this. Why? Because no one knows the day or the hour. No one's going to know when the church is called out. No one's going to know when he comes and pulls the church out. That's what Jesus himself stated. No one knows the day or the hour. Two people are going to be in a field, Matthew 24. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. And if we can know... Which, you know, signed the peace treaty. Oh, you see it on Fox News. Antichrist, this guy signed the peace treaty with Israel. Israel signed a seven-year peace treaty. Then start counting down, and you will know precisely seven years from that moment Jesus is coming. But Jesus says we can't know the day or the hour. Rapture is going to happen before that. And that's one of many reasons that I believe it. Thanks for sticking with me on that one. Okay, so Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 5 tells us about this tribulation period that, that comes as a result of Israel being deceived into signing a covenant. Just as they're deceived into signing the covenant, covenant with the Gibeonites, they're going to be deceived again. And Jeremiah 30 verse 5 says, The Lord says the following, I have heard the sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Interesting, the word terror is used there. I have heard the sound of terror, terrorism, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. (laughs) Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for the day is great, and there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. The time of Jacob's trouble, kicked off by signing this false covenant, this peace treaty with Antichrist, and it's going to be a time of distress never before known by the Jewish people compared to the Holocaust. Compared to the the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Compared to when Israel was taken by Assyria, northern Israel. Or when Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity. Compared to the worst of the worst that has ever happened to Israel. And Jeremiah prophesies there has never been a day like the day of the tribulation. It's going to be bad. But he will be saved from it. 
Jeremiah tells us. And to anyone who believes in replacement theology, that is that the church is the new Israel and Israel lost out. God is through with the Jew. They don't have a place anymore. Israel will be saved at the end of this seven year time. Israel will be saved from it. Not the church. Israel, for again, the church will be long gone. Why does Jacob's distress happen? Because no one is listening to the mouth of the servant Jesus. Because no one's discerning. And we see it constantly. We're watching it happen on the news. I just sometimes wring my hands watching governments try to be political with governments who don't believe in the truth. It's Kiraish. And we see all this going on and no one's listening to the mouth of his servant Jesus. Which is why the world is going to be thrown into this turmoil. It's why governments, no matter how great, how strong, are not going to see it coming. The Bible details it specifically, precisely. We're right now watching Iran and, and Persia and Russia together. We're watching this alliance grow. And yes, people are concerned, but the voice out there is, well, you know, we just gotta we gotta work through diplomatic channels and everything. No one's listening. No one's paying attention to what the word has told us, which is why I believe Jesus says over and over, He who has an ear, let him hear. I have told you everything you need to be discerning in this world. Now, finally in our outline, we come to the last part. And that is the Christ declared. The Christ declared. For this story, as so many before and after, declares Jesus Christ. Let's finish this. First, what happened to the Gibeonites? Verse 21 going on says, They became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. And then Joshua called for them, and and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying we're very far from you when you're living within our land? I do like that. Joshua's calling it our land. (laughs) This land is our land. It is not your land. He says, Why have you deceived us? Now therefore you're cursed, verse 23, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water, for the house of my God. He's speaking of the temple which had yet to be built. So they answered Joshua and they said, Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. See, they were paranoid, not discerning. Fear of man. They were rightly afraid, but they were wrong in their behavior. Verse 25, Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. I like that. There's a bit of humility in the Gibeonites. They're caught... They fess up to the deception, but now they're saying, we're at your mercy. It's up to you. And thus he did to them, verse 26, and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. And by the way, every time it says in the place which he would choose, that's hinting that there's going to be a specific place in the land where the temple would be, and that's Jerusalem. So ultimately, what is it that happened to the Gibeonites? Interesting turn of events for the people of Gibeon. Ultimately, they would remain in faithful service to Israel. 
If you look ahead, and I'll let you do this on your own time, Ezra chapter 2 verse 43 and Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 46. Both of these two verses give a genealogical listing of what the, uh, the King James Version transliterates the Nethanim. Nethanim. A group of people called the Nethanim, and the NASB translates it, the temple servants. Literally, the word Nethanim means sent one or given one. And these Nethanim, these given ones, are the Gibeonites. And all the way over in Ezra and Nehemiah, who have come back from Babylonian captivity. So this is what? Going to be 800 years later. They're coming back from Babylonian captivity and the Nephanim, the Gibeonites, are still serving. They're still working faithfully as servants to Israel. Interesting. The Gibeonites are also a picture of another group of servants who we studied before. Another group of servants who, who would reject Jesus today, who right now, living among us today, have rejected Jesus People who would even deceive Christians like you and I into covenants and contracts and commitments that are unhealthy and unholy, but their deception may not necessarily even be on purpose. (laughs) Who are you talking about? Listen, a day is coming when this people I'm describing will realize the necessity of aligning themselves with Israel. They will give themselves to Jesus which will alert them to their loving call to serve Israel and they are not the church because they're not going to come to this reality until after the church is gone they are what we call the tribulation saints the tribulation saints are those who will come to faith in Jesus during the time of Jacob's distress quickly flip over to Revelation chapter 7 Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 Which tells us, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could come, could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. Now down in verse 13 of Revelation 7, it says, One of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know... And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They come out of the great tribulation. They don't start out on the Lord's side, but they end up on the Lord's side. And part of being on the Lord's side means aligning themselves with Israel just as the Gibeonites do. Seven nations against Israel. Seven nations wanting to attack. As by the way, there will be seven nations in a coalition under Antichrist wanting to attack. But out of that seven nations, a group of people, the Gibeonites, suddenly realize we got to align with Israel. Same thing in the end times. During the tribulation, out of that seven nation consortium, there are going to be people who realize who Jesus is. Who come to faith in Jesus. They're not Jews. They're not Israel. But they will support Israel. And for this, the Bible tells us, they will lose their heads. They will be martyred for it. The tribulation saints share something else in common with the Gibeonites. We're going to see this next week in chapter 10. But the Gibeonites align themselves with Israel and immediately war is declared against them. These other kings in the surrounding countries don't go after Israel. They say the Gibeonites align themselves and they're bigger and stronger than Ai. So we're going to go take out Gibeon. And they shift their focus momentarily from Israel to the Gibeonites to take them out. 
And it seems to be that way anytime people align themselves with Israel. And I speak not only nationally, as we see America, that President Ahmadinejad, he looks at America and calls us the great Satan because we're aligned with what he calls the little Satan, which is Israel. And at 9-11, Osama bin Laden claimed if, we, if it's our foreign policy, if we had stayed out of Israel and stayed out of the Middle East business, 9-11 might not have happened. Now, I'm not sure if I believe that, but I do believe that our alignment with Israel as a country has brought quite a bit of cost to our country. I believe it's a cost well spent, but it's a cost nonetheless. I also believe that if you individually choose to align yourself with Israel, be discerning and watch out. Because life can get tough. For me in my life, personally, the hardest year of my entire ministry was last year, immediately following Cheryl and I going to Israel. And I don't think that's on accident. Satan hates the Jews. Satan hates anything to do with Messiah's line and wants to see it destroyed. And he's tried over and over and over throughout all history, as we are very aware. And so aligning with Israel is dangerous. The Gibeonites did it. They have war called against them. The tribulation saints will do it. Revelation 12:17 tells us that Satan becomes enraged with Israel, but goes off to make war with the rest of her children. What children? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, followers of Jesus in the tribulation. The tribulation saints. By the way, Jesus indicates one of the standards which will be used to judge those who live through the tribulation is how they treated Israel. Matthew chapter 25 verse 40. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, which by the way I don't believe is applied to the church or to us in this in this um, time period I believe Matthew 25 the sheep and the goats is the final judgment on those who lived through the tribulation and what he says is truly I say to you Jesus speaking to the extent that you did it to the one of the least of these brothers of mine Jewish people my brothers even the least of them you did it to me and so their treatment of Israel is going to be a standard of judgment for people who lived through the tribulation But what's going to happen to those who come to faith during the tribulation and then are martyred because of Antichrist? Revelation 7.15, now watch this, it's coming to a conclusion here. Revelation 7.15, referring to these tribulation saints, of whom the Gibeonites are a picture, it says the following, For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night at His temple. What was it the Gibeonites did? They served the needs of the temple. They were hewers of wood and drawers of water for the temple. In the same way, tribulation saints will serve for the temple. Interesting parallel. These temple servants, given ones, Nethanim, faithfully served Israel all the way up to the destruction of the second temple in A.D. 70, just after the coming of another servant, the ultimate given one. I told you we're going to see Jesus here. The Christ declared. For the Gibeonites in and of themselves are even a unique picture or reminder at least of Jesus Christ. The Nephanim, the sent ones, the given ones. And what is Jesus but the sent one? He is the given one. For God so loved the world that He gave. 
He gave. Jesus is the given one. He is the servant. The suffering servant. But he didn't hew wood for the temple. No, instead he bore the wood of the altar of Calvary. He didn't draw water for the temple. Instead, no, he provides the living water by his spirit eternally. Christ Jesus, the sent one, the given one. May he ever be declared in this place as the given one among us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the pictures, for the truths that we see. We thank you that we can look at this this faulty covenant and be reminded ourselves of the importance of discerning, of hearing from you, of listening to the speaking of your mouth, Lord Jesus. God, we pray for these last days in which we live. We pray for Israel now, Lord. As we determine to be aligned with this people, and maybe we can't do a whole lot right here on North Whidbey Island, maybe we think we're limited by the distance we have to travel even to be somewhere like Israel, or limited because so many in this fellowship can't, can't even make this trip because of cost and other restrictions, but God, we realize that we can do the most powerful thing, and that's cry out for the peace of Jerusalem. That we can pray for Israel. We can align our hearts with the people of Israel and with the plan that you have for them that is laid out in Scripture. Father, more than that, in our lives, we pray for discernment. We pray that we won't be deceived. And we pray, Jesus, that you would be speaking into our ears so clearly. Open our ears. Remove all the clogged stuff in our ears that keeps us from hearing. That we might not be people of distraction, but people of discernment. That we might not, Lord, be paranoid. But we have nothing to fear from man who can just kill the body. Our fear needs to be the one who can deal with our soul. So we fear you, Father, with a loving fear. And pray that, Holy Spirit, you will give us wisdom and understanding and counsel. That you will teach us to discern. In these last days, we pray this in Jesus' name.